Creativity, we talk photography and a shit ton of tech. And I could not come up with a better person to geek out about lenses and get all philosophical about uh, the imaging process than uh, with you. Uh, runs the company and YouTube channel Three Blind Men and an Elephant. I always mess that up and I try to put it into the search. <laughs> um, I sometimes write three blind elephant and a man, but um, <laughs> long story short, uh, you be very, very welcome on this uh, little podcast and um, yeah, introduce, introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what you do. Well, Simon, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I like what you do. I like your work. I saw that in the New York Times and a couple of other places. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, for purposes of your audience who don't know me, it probably makes sense to say that I am a corporate escapee, that I spent decades in corporate America, a senior executive in the pharmaceutical industry and on Wall Street. So what I like to say is that I used to be in Slytherin House, but I eventually left and maybe Gryffindor will let me in. Uh, what I did is I returned to my first passions as a, as a young man, photography and writing. And with the advent of the Canon 5D Mark II, which I bought in 2009, to go at video again, because I've also been a really big film buff. So that's, that's the start of my journey into YouTubing. Three Blind Men and an Elephant is a very small production company with very large animal logo. And our ambition in everything we do, which is really life, Claudia, is to imbue it, imbue our work with authenticity, humanity, and wit. And when I get too political, I just create a new YouTube channel where I can be a cranky old man shouting into the void. That's, uh, I think everyone has a little cranky old man living inside of them. So it's good to give that side of everyone's personality a little outlet, which is great. <laughs> so, um, well, in this case, I, I just, I just want to say in, in this case with the 2020, uh, election behind us and the inauguration complete, uh, I understood in 2015 who the candidates were and what they meant. And I raised my voice then. But as we entered the 2020 election, I felt I had to speak up more loudly because I did not want to turn around 20 years from now and say, I knew what was happening yeah. and I didn't do enough. And that's why I created uh, Silence is Complicity, which only has four videos on it. But it allowed me to speak my mind 
unfiltered uh, while respecting the fact that most people who come to my YouTube channel, uh, Instagram, uh, not Twitter so much, are coming for photography and the filmmaking, uh, the joy and the passion that comes from both. You said something uh, very, very interesting. So I just know you as a creative. I didn't know that uh, you were, you know, before that having been like, quote unquote, a business guy that, you know, uh, that only, quote unquote, only businessy stuff. And then um, you decided to go into the creative thing. I I did the other other part. I was a uh, full-time creative. Now I'm doing uh, corporate jobs because I uh, got to pay them bills. Uh, but also that gave me now more freedom to to focus on the projects that I really, really love um, after being like creatively burned out for almost half a decade, not having the motivation to pick up the camera again and, you know, create with it. Um, but how did you first fall in love with photography? What made you be so obsessed with it the kodachrome slide when i was seven years old that my mother handed to me and i held it up to the light and i saw a piece of driftwood at water's edge and i was stunned up until that point i'd only seen black and white photographs or crappy color photographs that were printed at the drugstore you know down the block something like that but the luminosity of the image the colors of the image the way the shutter froze the water as it began to roll over that piece of driftwood just stunned me and my mother shot that on a leica 3a which i have over there and i didn't know anything about the history of that camera we can come back to that if and yeah. when you'd like but I was fascinated by the thing itself, the camera itself. In fact, I was so fascinated by it that I took it apart. Now, I didn't do that when I was seven. I think I waited a couple of years, but that, that was a wise decision. <laughs> yeah. Well, not so much, not so much, Simon, because I took it apart without having any idea of how to put it back together. And I stripped off the vulcanite because it was cracking anyway. And then I spray painted the body black because I thought that would look cool. And then I thought while I was at it, why don't I spray paint the top plate and then the uh, rangefinder viewfinder housing black too. This was flat black. And then while I'm at it, why don't I take a piece of chalk and rub it over the engraving on the top because white lettering looks really cool on black. And my mother didn't get mad at me. She didn't get mad at me. So that's the start. That's I'm dying start. a little inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was the start. And and I, like so many people, I, I took it not seriously. I just, I loved doing it. So yeah. by the time I was 12, I had a dark room in uh, the family bathroom. I learned how to develop film and prints, uh, make enlargements at a summer camp up in uh, Maine in the United States. Uh, my first job at 14 was uh, at a camera store in my local neighborhood that I would walk to twice a week. And I got paid. This is amazing. And when I was 16, I became the youngest ever photography counselor. Uh, I ran the photography program at the same camp that I'd learned how to uh, to develop in the first place. So that started me down the path. But I never, never, unlike you, I guess, wanted to be a photographer that got paid. 
I, I never wanted someone to tell me what I had to do. Yeah. And I did not want to create within a set of limits. I just wanted to pursue what I wanted to pursue. And where I grew up, that kind of path was not the path that one would take. And I know how bad this sounds, what I'm about to say, and it's bad. But where I grew up and the way I grew up, you either grew up to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a CEO. That that was it. So by an accident of but birth. it's not I'm, a bad thing. You know? No, no. I mean, on the one hand, it's an extraordinary set of circumstances. Yeah. It's an extraordinary set of circumstances. It's an accident of birth. But I was given tremendous opportunities. And uh, I went into the corporate world because I could have more control. And I thought I could make a lot more money, which I did. And I enjoyed it lived overseas for three years, raised a family, gave my family and myself an extraordinary set of opportunities, lost track of the impact of what I was doing. Uh, I, I just thought that I was using technology to solve problems. I never stopped to think who I was enriching and what the end result would be. And then at the age of 44, a combination of a bunch of things profoundly altered my life. And then I went back to first principles. So now I'm much poorer, but I'm much happier. And I, I think everyone has their own creative journey, right? So um, I think it's it's really, really important that when you are born into a, a fortunate situation that you take advantage of it because there are so many people out there that don't have this opportunity and i th find it extremely disrespectful to not uh, develop the most out of yourself um, so you can be your best version let it be financially creativity or uh, with your ethics um, but I, creatively speaking um, for me personal I I did, did the other part, as you just said, like I wanted to uh, become commercially successful, um, but I also only picked causes and uh, projects that I really care about. The downside for that, since you're getting paid, you need to deliver. Um, and um, sometimes this is really, really difficult because, you know, photography for me is something super meditative you know like you're just running around with uh, with the camera and just trying to observe what's happening around you and try to find um, a motive or a scene that fits the best for the situation that you're feeling um, and which for, for me is really really um, fascinating you know like how we are able to see something that is not us but so much that you see in the big picture is something that comes from us if if that makes any sense right oh absolutely it does absolutely it does joel meyerowitz said that when he looks at a photographer's body of work never just one photograph but say a dozen he's trying to see if he can find the values in the photographer in yeah. the work I think that's very important in, in our streets of New York photography workshops. We have a session, a specific section on honing or finding one's artistic voice by mining one's own origin story. So I, I absolutely get that. 
But I also understand that the photographers whose work I admire most, Henri Cartier-Bresson above all, but also someone like Joel, who was on track at 24, was a madman in the marketing world, the advertising world, meeting Robert Frank and saying, oh, God, I need to quit what I'm doing now and do that. Uh, And Cartier-Bresson, also by an accident of birth, was born into one of the 200 wealthiest families in France. And so he had the wherewithal to pursue his art, first painting. And then when he discovered the camera, said, I can paint with that and it's even faster and could travel the world on a modest stipend, which not that modest if you could travel the world. But that was also extraordinary. So these are photographers who uh, followed their passion. And that's happening always. It's happening now. Someone like uh, uh, Devin Allen uh, covering uh, the Black Lives Matter and police brutality protests. It comes from the a place of personal centeredness. And I dig it. Yeah, um, that would have been my next uh, question. Who are your favorite photographers and what is it that you are so attracted to with their work? In, in the case of, of Henri Cartier-Bresson, it is who he was and how who he was influenced what he chose to shoot. So he saw the benefits of and was a beneficiary of capitalism up close during the the rise of industrialization. His family made their fortunes uh, from textile mills. But he also saw the problems with capitalism, the in, uh, income inequality even then in the 19th century. And with the collapse of the stock market in 1929, uh, And the collapse, really, of the world economy, which was predicated on capitalism in the 1930s, he flirted very heavily with communism. And we don't talk about it that much. Most people don't know about it that much. And I don't start by saying, oh, communism, terrible. I just sit there with an open mind and curiosity and explore. And it strikes me that reasonable people back then would have said that capitalism had failed and and alternative forms uh, were necessary. Of course, we all know what happened with communism as it was practiced in the Soviet Union, which was terrible. But that led him to take it very seriously. He worked with Jean Renault in film. He actually was in a movie or two with him, uh, which was social commentary. He worked for the communist newspaper, uh, Cessois in the early 30s. So he went from being a young man with a trust fund, taking surreal photographs because surrealism was a reaction to the First World War. Basically, oh, all of you elites, you just screwed us. So so we're not paying any attention to you. This notion of of patriotism and rah-rah, that's nonsense. That's jingoism. But then uh, there was an economic impact to that. And that led him to do other things. And then World War II. And he was captured three times. He was a POW. He was in the French army, captured three times. He escaped the third time. But that had a tremendous impact on him. In fact, the story goes that he buried his cameras so that when he got out, he could get them back. And uh, shortly after the war, the Museum of Modern Art in New York City was going to do a retrospective of Cartier-Bresson, assuming that he'd been killed in the war. And it was, hey, I'm here. 
And so he, along with Robert uh, Capra, uh, uh, Tim, and I forget who the fourth one was, founded Magnum. And then he, by and large, got to pick his assignments. And it wasn't like, okay, I'll go out for one week to China as China was about to fall to the communists, the, the, the civil war in China. Uh, instead, he ended up being in China for three years. He photographed Gandhi the day before he was assassinated. His famous photograph of uh, the run on Chinese banks as the communists were uh, on the verge of taking over. You have to ask yourself, why was he there? Why was he there? Why was he there? And all of a sudden, when we get into a clearer understanding of his backstory, of his personal origin story, these things become much clearer and much more inspiring to me. So he's my all-time favorite, and, and that's why. Did that pretty, answer the question? Pretty, uh, pretty awesome, Lee. <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, also am a big fan of another Magnum um, artist. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure he's part of Magnum, Steve McCurry. I think I'm a, I'm very very yeah, mainstream sure. with this opinion that uh, Steve McCurry is uh, is awesome. That's not too much of a well educated uh, statement, but what I what I like about photography and that that's not only Steve, but basically everything I see from um, other artists is really when you can see the soul or you know something that you feel that there was a connection while the picture was made or there was something going on in the head of the person. Um, that's for me, like the Holy grail of, of taking a good picture. You know, everyone can take a picture with a phone and it can look great. Everyone can take a picture with a Hasselblad. It can look great. Um, you can be technically the greatest of all time, but sometimes there's just no, yeah, no magic I, for the lack of a better word uh, happening in that moment. And I think Steve is a grandmaster at, at this art. I think that, of course, Steve, again, no newsflash, he's got extraordinary uh, sense yeah. of color. He is extraordinarily adept at removing things from the frame that get in the way of what's important. I mean, there's some really interesting post-production uh, to what he does. Uh, Afghan Girl, of course, is one of the classics of all time. And yet I'm not sure what it is that we're seeing in the eyes of that girl. I, I like to say that you can always tell yeah. something about the relationship between the photographer and the subject in the image. In this case, I don't know what it is. But of course, that's the thing about art, right? There's no such thing as objectively great art. Instead, art is actually the relationship between the viewer or consumer of it and the thing itself, whether it's a photograph or food or wine or industrial design. It's what we bring to it each and every time. I do think to your point, though, about being technically good and still not hitting it. I give you credit for being kind because there is an awful lot of photography out there, which is completely vacuous, where it's quote unquote technically perfect and utterly devoid of personality, meaning, consequence. It's just, it's eye candy. And I, I don't enjoy that kind of stuff at all, but to each is yes. for her. Um, I think it's, it's good that we drop a little disclaimer here, not to disc, dis, disencourage people uh, to take on uh, the journey. 
um, you know, like just because uh, someone else doesn't like it, that doesn't mean that you're perfectly doing um, uh, that you're personally doing a bad job. It's just like there's different flavors for different people. So when we talk about quote unquote bad photography, that's just to a personal preference, but that doesn't disqualify uh, the place at the journey where you are in the creative process. Because uh, I, what a, what a yeah, great I, point. I needed to learn that I'm uh, in, in the German culture, at least how, how I understand it. Um, everyone here speaks English, but since we are not uh, native yes. level, we say we don't speak it or we are really, really bad at it because we only say we're good at something when we are the upper one point uh, something percent in the world of what we're doing. At least that's how my Southern German of uh, understanding of uh, how we work as people uh, is, could be different from other people from other areas, but um, especially here, uh, you know, like this is such a dif difference between um, what I've experienced from my time in the United States. You know, you take one picture and you're a professional photographer. You know, you're like you speak life into you, you, you declare your intent of what you want to become, but you already say it as a, a thing that is present. While I always, you know, like was almost embarrassed to call myself a professional with the work I did, yeah, including until like everything I sent you. Like until last week, no, it's just a, it's, it's, it's <laughs> a new, new uh, process for me to like allow myself to be, be proud of my work and not always be nitpicky and uh, extremely over the top critical with everything I do. This is just how I, um, you know, developed my, my way of, of, of seeing the world, um, that, you know, if it's not flawless and if it's not something that is going to be shown in a, um, in a museum or whatever, then it's like trash. That was how I saw my, my own work, uh, for the very, very long time. And now I'm more at peace with what I do and how I do it. And, um, you know, in, in the mention you said, uh, in, in, in the beginning, you mentioned, uh, very kindly that, um, you know, one of my photographs ended up in, for example, the New York times, which wasn't my, uh, doing it was, uh, uh, my, my friend, uh, that had the story written about him, but I happened to take, uh, the most favorite picture and probably also the least blurry one of him <laughs> so <laughs> um uh, that's that's for that story but uh you know once i got an email by by these guys from new york and was like me you you sure that's not like uh you wanted to write someone else <laughs> you have the right simon is that the right simon maybe it's a different simon well look i think you raise a, a, a number of critical points there is a balance to be had between honesty with one's self and self-love yep. and Germany is not the only country where the culture is perfectionist uh, Switzerland uh, at least the German Swiss part of Switzerland is very much like that I can speak from personal experience I have family there as well <laughs> uh, yeah I've I've never met an English-speaking German whose English wasn't at least a thousand percent better than my German. Uh, in fact, 
when I go to a new country or every time I go to a foreign country, I try to make sure that I know a few phrases because I want people to understand. I think it important enough. It is a sign of respect that that I take that time. In the case of Germany, though, uh, as with all of the European countries, when I lived there, I would learn what was most important first. So the the first phrase that I learned uh, in Germany, because I was traveling to Frankfurt very often, was was uh, "Wo ist der Toiletten?" You know, you have to go with a hierarchy of needs. Oh, yeah, yeah. So back to. Uh um, trashing other people's work. Just kidding. Um, I, I think it is very, very um, important that self-awareness in, in the creative process, um, that you know what you're good at and what you really care about, or if you're going for something that maybe is in fashion or is popular or has has a higher social status in the work let's uh which would be for me probably like anything connected to fashion photography you know like i tried if i was any good i wasn't um and i also didn't enjoy it um so um i i really focused and on documentary and portraiture and you know trying to learn from uh, for example steve mccurry's work you know how to asking myself how would he have done but also not forgetting like what do i like to do how did you find your personal taste how did you find your niche where you were like yeah that's what i enjoy but also that's what i'm good at well it it began as it does for so many other people Simon, by taking photographs of what was closest around me, and that was family. So from early on, I was taking photographs of people, and there was uh, always a positive association with it. It was always lovely. And I had two sisters, and, you know, take pictures of me, and so I, I would do that. And then it was mostly, well, it's pretty much always been about people or about urban landscape. Uh, Claudia and I both are happy to acknowledge that we are terrible at landscape photography. And, and I think we're very clear about why that is as well. And that is because when we are out in nature, urban landscape, I love, yeah. but when we're out in nature, when we see Shion, in the distance uh, in Switzerland, or when we've been at Grand Teton National Park or uh, the Narrows in Zion, the feelings that we have, or uh, Mount San Jacinto State Park in, in California, the feelings that we have being at one with nature, truly understanding, feeling awe, yeah. literally awe, There's no way that we've ever been able to capture those emotions in our imagery. So we don't even try anymore. We just sit there and say, let's take it in and revel in it. Now, some people think that if you take a photograph, you're actually distancing yourself from reality. And I understand that there are certain circumstances where that's true. But on the other hand, for me, photographing people especially on the street. Uh, Joel Meyerowitz said to me, oh, 
you're a portrait photographer who uses the street as your studio. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah. But but the reason why I did that eventually migrated to that is because I learned that when I create a moment of connection with a stranger, when I say, excuse me, and then whatever is that I say, and they say yes, because 95% of the time I ask for permission, we co-create something. And in that moment of co-creation, in that moment of casual intimacy, I'm reassured that the world is not a uniformly terrible place. That's why I shoot street. But when I shoot urban landscape, it's still about people because the textures and geometry, you know, when you look at the Chrysler building, I can't ever get tired of looking at the Chrysler building, not simply because it's for me, the most beautiful skyscraper ever built, but because I understand when it was built. I understand what was happening historically when it was built. It was being built at the the depths of the depression and the Empire State Building was being built at the same time. And so there was this rivalry going on and the builders of the Empire State Building actually built a mask underneath scaffolding so that the Chrysler building people wouldn't know until the moment they hoisted it up that it would become the tallest building in the world. Stuff like that. So, uh, in fact, there was a a while where I did portrait work for pay and I enjoyed uh, meeting people and making them feel great about how they looked. That was lovely, but it didn't give me nearly the satisfaction of walking up to someone and saying, those glasses, you got to look going, would you mind if I take your photograph? And in the two or three minutes that we're talking, we can sometimes very quickly get to a different place. Or sometimes I can ask someone, excuse me, love whatever. And the person asks, yeah, who are you? And why do you want that? And I explain. And what's delightful is that in telling the absolute truth, I'm testing a piece of gear or I love interacting with people. I love New York City and the people. And even someone like that gets to yes. So that's that's where I started. And that's where I am now. I totally enjoy um, the same things about documentary work, um, which is like just freezing a moment and freezing something that stood out over everything else and when you were talking about the swiss mountains and you know how just phenomenal and beautiful they are um, i guess the best everyday example is trying to photograph a sun uh photograph a sunset with your iphone you know (laughs) you you always are disappointed because the colors the glow everything is just not working when you take a picture of it this is impossible people need to stop including me taking pictures of sunset because that's the fastest way to a disappointment well i would say something different i actually think you can get an amazing photograph with any camera including iphones and and i use iphones uh and i'll post regularly i i the things that you can do with iphones now are off the hook and the notion or the use of computational imaging to effectively increase a dynamic range or you know hybrid log gamma uh, or hdr high dynamic range is, is really quite extraordinary the reason why i don't take sunsets is because everyone else is taking sunsets so if i want to see a sunset i can look at someone else's work or i can just sit there 
in real life and go exactly that was basically wash the point. over me <laughs> wash over me like just let me let me enjoy it let me enjoy it yeah it's not really uh my my problem is not the iphone what makes me uh unhappy about when i take sunset pictures you know it's just like instinct you see something pretty monkey needs to press button right so uh, <laughs> <laughs> um it's just I can use my D eight hundred or whatever, you know, like which is phenomenal at dynamic range for the fact that this thing was developed a decade ago. Um but but still there's just some things that whatever you try, you can get the idea of it, but you will not do it justice. And you're saying, all right, you're do, not doing landscape. Um, I totally can understand that. Sometimes I try to do landscape, but then it's never how I see it uh in real life um for documentary and like being there done that reasons i still take these pictures but i probably would not uh put them into my portfolio if that makes sense uh, uh sure sure but i will say that i also love documentary photography and i uh covered the tax march I was testing new equipment uh, in uh, New York City in 2017, and we have a 27 by 40 inch print of a protester saying no tax breaks for billionaires. Well, nice idea. It didn't work out that way, but it's it's one of my favorite photographs of all time. Uh, or uh, Claudia and I were covering Bernie Sanders uh, at the end of 2015. Right. And we were up in New Hampshire, actually. We went back a couple of times. That's funny. And there's one image that we caught of light streaming through this window at this little church in a little American town. And it came down onto Bernie and he's doing his his arms and hands waving. And this is one of my favorite photographs of all time as well. So there's tremendous power in photography, rarely because of the technology but absolutely a function of wetware. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was at the same time um, also in the States 2015, and I we went to a Bernie event in Tampa. And um, for me as a European, you know, it, it is very difficult to understand uh, the entertainment culture around American politics. Um not to not to judge it in in any way but like it is a event you know it's like the the political oktoberfest when it's electoral election season you know like people go to places and they go to rallies um if if people would try to campaign here uh, like you guys do in the states uh there would be a lot of confused faces but it was the vibe at this bernie uh event um you know and you don't need to agree with a person politically to like see what the energy is about and everything, right? You, you sometimes can be there as a just observer. And uh, I got myself also a, a photographer's accreditation and um, used my great 50 millimeter documentary lens that is wonderful from shooting things uh, from long distances. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but I, I, I also uh, was able to catch a catch a few few shots, and um, I think what what I see, like let's talk like big world events or you know big public events, and when you're there with your camera, it's always interesting to see the um, 
what people decide to focus on with their imagery? Well, I, I would say that when when doing that kind of work, I don't rely on primes. I'm a very strong primes kind of guy. But the only time that I'll rely on primes is if I have two camera bodies. And then it's fine. Yeah. Typically a 35 yeah. and an 85 or a 90. But this is when a good 24 to 70 is a great piece of kit to have. Uh, oh, yeah. But but okay. But I I... When it comes to spectacle in the United States and politics, you know, don't get me started. But I will say that uh, and have no apologies to make for saying that I think Bernie Sanders is one of the greatest politicians in the history of the country. And there will be plenty of people who say, ah, he's a communist, he's a socialist. We're not going to get into that. But uh, I'm delighted that he's chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. And I think that he and, and Joe Biden have an opportunity to do real good for the American people and not just the people who contribute to politicians campaigns. So that's it for politics. But I am <laughs> I am I am so relieved here on January 23rd, Simon, so relieved, as are so many people around the world. And and yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's it's good to have less stress and being less annoyed and have um, less headlines about some something silly someone said on Twitter. Um, it's been even since uh, all of that happened uh, very relaxing to uh, be exposed to this world. <laughs> let's say, yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, rightfully so said uh, enough of politics because that's uh, probably more like uh, a thing that is best talked with a glass of wine and in person and a lot of like pizza or something like that oh i can't eat pizza um, anymore i just can't <laughs> but actually I, I want to say not that we're going to talk about it more but to, for those of, of of your audience listening who say you shouldn't mix politics and photography that's a profound ignorance of what photography has always been about it has it, it, always been inextricably interwoven or intertwined with politics because yeah. politics is about humanity and photography yeah. is about capturing humanity. The best photography is about capturing humanity. And, and photography is literally about perspectives. You know, like, you you can um if you get into how you do framing you know how what type of shot if you go like ultra close if you do the classic cowboy and you know all of these little types of thing that already is enough to influence how the observer of the picture thinks about the person right if you look up to the person if you look down to the person and all, all, all of that um but i wanted to ask you going back to um your first Leica. Uh, which, um, you know, is, is Leica is uh, absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, also with the whole, um, you know, political and the whole stuff. That's beautiful. <laughs> you you, <laughs> you see that that's... can't that see just, what I'm seeing. Uh, I'm getting very paint. jealous. That's just paint. <laughs> yeah. That's that's gorgeous. And uh, did you know that uh, the 
the founder of Leica was uh, fighting the the Nazi system by um, trying to get as many Jewish people like hiding them or give them work so they wouldn't be put into the camps. Have you ever heard of that story? Sure, it's it's called the Leica Freedom Train, and it's yeah. interesting that the Lights family did not want to talk about it. I mean, we the history of humanity is often the history of ordinary people, even extraordinary people, being harnessed by extraordinarily bad people. And it is true that uh, Ernst Leitz, the second, I believe it was, resisted joining the Nazi party for as yeah. long as he felt he could, uh, but that at some point it just became too much. His daughter at one point was kidnapped uh, and held for ransom. Uh, it's also true that Leica made uh, precision optics for the Wehrmacht and I assume the Luftwaffe or the uh, the uh, submarine fleet or, or the, the Navy as well. But it is true that in an extraordinary effort, uh, Ernst Leitz II saved what is probably hundreds of, of Jewish employees. The story goes by saying, okay, I'm sending them to New York or wherever to open a sales office or be part of a sales office, often with a Leica camera, which they could then use and sell if they needed to. So this is another reason why I uh, have chosen to invest in Leica. At this point, they're it's very difficult to find a camera that isn't good. So increasingly, I see it as we vote with our dollars. We vote not just for the technology, but we vote for the company. We vote for the yeah. people of that company. And Leica is extraordinary that way. I mean, it's still a business, of course, but- uh, Nothing history, wrong about that either. Yeah, the history, the history is what it is. And the other company that I feel that way about uh, right now is Sigma. Uh, I like people at all of these companies, the people that I know personally, but uh, Leica and now Sigma in particular stand out to me uh, going all the way back to the engineering. So not just maybe salespeople or marketing people that I know in the United States, but going all the way to the very top of the company. Uh, uh, Yamani is extraordinary. The, the lenses that his teams are putting out, how they think about lenses. Uh, I, I want to vote with my money. I want to give my money to them. Yeah, and I, I think especially um, talking about like old, quote unquote, old cameras, mechanical analog cameras, or in today's world, in the year 2021, DSLR, already vintage technology for some. Uh, there are some YouTubers that uh, go on their channel with t-shirts saying real photographers don't need mirrors or something like that, where I'm just need to hold my head in disbelief. Well, there's an, um, there's an awful lot of nonsense. There's an awful lot of stunted emotional development out there. But whether you talk about DSLRs, so this uh, I bought new. Uh, let's see if I can do this. 1DX? No. The original four. This is OG, original Gangster One uh, D, four megapixels. I bought it new in two thousand two. I took a photograph of the uh, World Trade Center Memorial Light Show. It hangs on our wall, and I could never get rid of it. I started with this. This was my first serious camera. It was a Canon. Come on, come on, you can do it. S five. 
Uh, maybe you can't. A Canon FT. I had an AE1. No, no, it's a Canon FTQL. Yeah. I bought that with my own money after working in a camera store. But again, yeah. there are there are other amazing cameras. I really like. Uh, where is it? I really like what Nikon is doing these days. Yeah, I want to talk to you all about that new Nikon stuff yeah. because. Um, I am a diehard Nikon fan, um, but after the D800, I stopped looking into other cameras because uh, for everything I was doing uh, until today in photography, the D800 still does it all. Um, sure. It's probably the mo most most boomer statement from me uh, ever, like, oh, you know, that's all I need. And But, like, the resolution is great. The, uh, the colors are great. The dy dynamic range is great. And from the D800 to everything until now, there has not been as much change or big leaps, um, big milestones, in, at least for the stuff that I do. Yeah. Um, but do you think um, that photography even from the mechanical side going more digital with digital viewfinders and um you know like the mechanics start to disappear out of the photography process for so many pros and also enthusiasts that it kind of starts this old debate but do you think with the um decrease of mechanical elements that one of at least for me, the most fascinating things about photography, you know, the, the feeling of the movement of the mirror, uh, adjusting things with metal dials and all of that, uh, which for me is what I would describe as the soul of photography. Do you think uh, a lot of um, great things are getting lost because we don't have this physical connection to the art anymore? <laughs> In the end, to the extent that one judges photographs, one is judging the result. Yes? So however we get there doesn't really matter that much to me as far as what anyone else wants to do. The reality is that a digital workflow as opposed to film allows one to have a dramatically faster feedback loop so that you learn and incorporate those learnings infinitely faster than you can with film. And I say that as someone who's done both. When you think about convenience, so the original Leica, and again, this is a 3A, The innovation was that it was so small that you could take it with you and they were willing to compromise on image quality of the negative and countering it with superior optics. But when you look at this one behind, you'll see that there are two windows. One is to view and compose. The other is to actually focus. And it's a pain. Even Alfred Eisenstadt got this uh, Vio finder so that he could look through this rather than the camera itself to get photographs much more quickly. The, the singular advantage of mirrorless cameras from where I sit is for video. That if you don't need video, you can put a sensor, the newest sensors into a DSLR, and you've got an extraordinary tool with the advantage of seeing the dynamic yep. range directly. 
right? If, if you ever ask your audience maybe to try this sometime, look through a ground glass, you know, prism finder at a bright scene and then look at it through an EVF and you go, oh, wow, I had no idea I was missing yeah. that much information. The flip side is you can uh, preview more clearly what the image is going to look like before you ever trip the shutter, including, for example, with some cameras, seeing what a low shutter speed will do in the way of blur in real time. It blurs the image in the viewfinder, you know, with an EVF. I think that's fantastic. I swapped out of Canon in 2000, at the end of 2014, because the 5D Mark II I owned had really gotten me into video and I could not consistently, reliably focus, uh, when I was shooting video, I had to rely on the rear screen. You couldn't look through the uh, the viewfinder. And the resolution of the rear screen was so low that even when I got a Zacuto magnifier, I still couldn't critically focus. It was, it was quite wild. So uh, then also, of course, at the beginning uh, with manual focus cameras, you know, Eisenstadt had this camera for the KISS in Times Square. He had this camera. And he set it to, I believe it was 10 feet, 100 or 125th of a second at F8, I think it was. And the thing that's lovely about this is that he knew what 10 feet looked like. He was more engaged with the real world because he would look through an optical finder and he knew that when the people were such and such size relative to the frame, that was 10 feet. And in that regard, I think we miss something. We are a little bit more detached with an EVF than we are uh, with a viewfinder, an optical finder, or even a ground glass finder. But by the same token, back then, they didn't have light meters. Okay, rule of sunny 16, fine. And the films were so slow anyway that it worked out. But that also created a certain kind of look. And the technology that we have now allows us to do new looks, not for the sake of new looks, but because we see things yeah. differently. So I think that's great. And the notion of computational imaging, finding its way into dedicated cameras, it's only a matter of time. And I actually think it's a great thing because blending exposures in Lightroom, you know, yeah. just let the camera do that, which is what yeah. a bunch of smartphones do. By the same token, look, I agree with you 100%. The Let's see. What is this? So this is my, my 90 millimeter Elmerit 2.8. And this is my 50 millimeter Summicron. There is something enormously satisfying and life affirming to slow down enough so that you can think ahead of time what it is that you want to do. Because when you do that, when you zone focus ahead of time and say, this is the kind of image that I'm going to get today. I'm only going to use this one lens because I can't think fast enough and I can't change fast enough. But if you only think in terms of one field of view on the street, all of a sudden you see so much more on the street in that field of view. And you can actually get a higher percentage of keepers, really great images by going Altaschule, old school. So... That was a long-winded way of saying, yes, it makes a difference, but no, not really. I, I think it, it, everyone that does photography as a hobby 
at least should once shoot analog just for understanding what all the people that live in the yesterday, <laughs> including me, are so uh, obsessed about with it. Like <clears throat> completing a film uh, with the Canon A1 that I owned, you had to like go all the way back and uh, develop the f yeah, rewind, rewind. and uh, bring the film to a lab if you didn't have one on yourself. And a few days later, you see what you did and sometimes you forgot what you took. And this is some... Looks like some medium format sweetness that you're. So this is a Hasselblad oh, 500 yeah. CM. Let me pull that back. And now, what, listen to this. Just listen. That's the sound of a waist yeah. level finder popping up, and uh, it doesn't quite pop up the way it should right now. But that's not the point. The point is that when you go to a new technology, there are trade offs. And there is something delicious about a shutter slap or a waist level finder popping up. There's something extraordinary about cradling a camera down around your stomach and seeing the world a foot or two or three lower than you ordinarily do. That's one reason yeah. why I love this. So, yeah. And as a guy that shoots Hasselblad, that shoots Leica, um does more expensive mean more better and why no <laughs> <laughs> so so the answer to the question is not necessarily the the further uh detail is there are plenty of inexpensive cameras that can outperform the most expensive cameras in certain ways uh, for example, a uh, an iPhone can take a photograph much faster than a Hasselblad. Just, there's no question about it. Uh, and I'm and I'm talking about new Hasselblads, an X1D2 or a 907X50C. Those just are not designed to do that. Uh, but on the other hand, if your definition of better is limited to resolution, field curvature, burst rates, dynamic range, high ISO performance. It is a discussion or a set of metrics devoid of humanity, devoid of yeah. joy, devoid of a discussion of one's own artistic voice. So there is not a direct and consistent correlation between price and result, but sometimes there is, and sometimes it's inverse. Sometimes you can have a very expensive camera, which takes so long to set up that the moment is gone and you could have gotten on a much cheaper device or when you're shooting sports, you know, you really basically have to shoot professionally with Sony or Canon in the mirrorless world. You can also shoot with Nikon in the, in the uh, DSLR world. But there are other times when uh, a very expensive piece of technology can so inspire that you are at your best. And I find that happens with me fairly regularly. 
It's one of the reasons why I shoot predominantly with Leica. But I will tell you that there is not a camera that I have tested in the last three years that I haven't been able to get incredible shots with, irrespective of price. So we shouldn't let price stop us from achieving our artistic ambitions. Absolutely, ambitions. absolutely. Like for me, my my goal, if, if someone would ask me, um, what is the one camera, you're only uh, allowed to have one camera and only one camera for the rest of your life and nothing else ever again, I probably would say the M monochrome. Um, just because it's such a stupid and also adorable and wonderful product. Um, <laughs> Um, for everyone knows when you shoot black and white you're automatically a pro and you're automatically uh incredible because you know it's immediate art that you do when it's black and white that's that's common sense and uh also um well look whether it's whether whether it's <laughs> look i look i i shoot predominantly in black yeah. and white And even when I shoot in color, if I'm using an EVF, I set it to yeah. black and white because for me, color in and of itself is usually not particularly informative. Uh, that's me. But if I so what I typically do is I shoot raw and JPEG. So the, the EVF is set to black and white and I am composing with the rigor that black and white uh I would say typically demands, but I will come back and look at it later and say, which looks better. And normally I, I know in advance, but I, I think that's a big difference. The monochrome, I don't think is stupid. I think it's fantastic, but it is limited, which is why as much as I love the uh, Leica Q2M, I mean, I think that's probably the best combination of performance and understated industrial design I have ever seen in the imaging field. Uh, but it's why the M10 monochrome does not appeal to me as much as the M10R. The M10 monochrome has an additional stop, maybe a stop and a half of uh, high ISO performance when it comes to noise, but Leica does it so organically that I, I think it's great anyway. And I so rarely shoot above 25,000 that it matters. The thing that's interesting about the monochrome is it actually renders differently. It's not just the high ISO performance. It actually renders differently than a bare sensored camera. So that's kind of interesting. But if I could only have one camera, it would be my Leica SL2 with my Aposumicron, which is upstairs. Uh, that's, that's it. But if I could have a second camera, it would be some version of an M. I'm going to be turning 64 in just a little bit less than a month. And uh, I'm thinking about the Beatles song, When I Get Older, Losing My Hair, many years from now. And I think maybe it's time for me to, to get an M once again. I had an M8 for years, ditched it. And it's funny because now I have like an M glass. I just don't have an M body. I have to fix that. And that is a perfect segue um, for my, my, my next topic, which is what do you or what should rookies in the art of photography and the professional photography, photography really really invest in and one of your uh, phenomenal youtube videos um, about the 10 to 25 uh, lumix lens 
which since then I think only ever about when I see my JH5 because that's exactly exactly what I what I want for it. <laughs> uh, the, oh yeah, I'll give you the oh, yeah. but um, I made the mistake as probably everyone, even if I was advised better uh, by professionals that have been in the business for decades. Do not spend money on expensive bodies if you cannot afford the, glen, the, the glass that lets you do what you actually want to do in photography with. Um, I've good advice. I, of course, I didn't listen to that, and I was like, "Yay, D eight hundred, great!" And I get the cheapest fifty millimeter Sigma I can find on eBay on that thing, and uh, was good enough for all the works uh, that I did. But most of the time, I always had to work around problems that I cost myself for going big body, cheap lens. And, uh, it's, it's, um, you know, I, I think the day I turned 30, I, uh, I'm now a certified grown up person and, <laughs> um, let me know what that feels like. Would you find? Uh, very exhausting. At times. <laughs> um, no, but I, I, I actually made a step backward from full frame for video to micro four thirds to make two steps forward, which means doing better content. And do not only please to all of the people that are still listening and didn't fall asleep for us geeking out about uh, Leica stuff. Um, do not make your purchase decision on YouTube reviews. Do not make your purchase decision on you know example sheets of how the lens fringing and all of these technical things you can do. Try it before you buy it and see which ecosystem works best for you and which even down to how you operate the menus. There's uh, there's few things that I would openly say they're absolutely dreadful and Sony's menus is one of them. Um, but I also think Canon menus are awful, but that's just, you know, a Nikon person uh, talking about the limited way of how I'm capable of uh, operating camera gear. So, <laughs> um, well, it's, it's really, it's, it's when it comes to menus, it's a lot about muscle yeah. memory. I mean, if you use the same thing long enough, you, you, come to terms with its foibles. Uh, when I left the Canon fold again at the end of 2014, I went to Sony. I went to a Sony a6000, a 24 megapixel crop sensor camera because it was an EVF and I could do exactly what I wanted with it. And I didn't care about the menus because I wasn't using that many functions. I mean, I learned how to shoot with an exposure triangle and a focus ring and a wind lever. And that was it. And the, the appalling thing about all of these menu systems is that they take away or increase the distance between intent and execution. Yeah. They they take they take they put so much in the way. It's it's insane. It's insane to think how many pages of menus most modern cameras now have for autofocus. Wait a minute. You're giving me a choice. I can actually just take a manual lens and go like this and I'm done or I have to menu dive across nine pages. That's kind of nuts. But the differences among Sony at this point, Canon, Nikon, Fujifilm, uh, even Panasonic, although I think Panasonic actually of those four has the, the best menu system. 
But the, the by far the two best menu systems out there at this point, uh, when it comes to full frame, that's Leica. It's simple and they don't give you a lot of choices. I think that's a big part of it. And I think that's fine. Uh, but then Hasselblad in medium format, their digital format, uh, uh, medium format cameras have the best menu system out there again, because it's, it's only a couple of pages. Yeah. And that's the irony to have an autofocus system, which requires so much time and energy to master or use is self-defeating. Yeah completely self-defeating but your larger point about getting uh glass that works that really works for you is is critical um we have been using we bought the gh5 we had one in hand the day they were available march 31st 2017 we used that for our entire mariner east documentary uh web series on the hazardous liquids pipeline here in pennsylvania and we we have a g9 uh, available to us we only use two lenses and it does everything. That 10 to 25, 1.7, and the 50 to 200, they do everything that a documentary or narrative filmmaker really needs to have done. And it's small and lightweight. And to replicate the capabilities and the optics in full frame would, but, would be just a completely different level of weight uh, and complexity exactly. that we won't work. We just won't. Exactly. And um, let's let's stay at the the case uh, of the 10 to 25, which, you know, I I'm an absolute YouTube nerd. I th there's nothing I watch more than YouTube, no Netflix, no Amazon, no Disney plus whatever, you know, like I find the way you can educate yourself and get different opinions in a very re relaxed way. Uh, YouTube is absolutely king. And a lot of people say, um, quote unquote, big lens, like physically big sense, uh, lens, uh, for micro four thirds, uh, makes micro four thirds, uh, completely absurd because it's only ever to have small, cheap, physically small and cheap lenses. But these, when I saw this, these people never have been on a movie set or in film production or anything. If you compare this with a cine lens that does the same thing, it's a joke from how small this thing is. Um, right. Or, or they'll say, you know, the, the 10 to 25 uh, Vario Simulux is a 1.7, which sounds fast until people say, yeah, but that's the full frame equivalent of a 3.4. That's true. The question you have to ask yourself simply is, what do you intend to do with it? And if you intend to uh, photograph or do video, really, that's what its uh, primary use is for us then you don't want 1.7 because it is so shallow that you can't get from the tip of the nose to the end of the ear in focus. Right now, I'm shooting on a full-frame S5. We're recording this. Your audience won't see it. But the S5, I've got an 85 1.8 on it set to 2.8. And you can see, Simon, that the depth of field is from my nose yep. to just ahead of my sideburns. That's all you need. So... But that's all you need. And 3.4 is hardly any more than that. It might be to the back of my ear. And there's nothing particularly special about my ears, but yeah. what difference does it and make? And also, um, so the bokeh, the depth of field, which an easy watts is like uh, the creamy, nice, smooth background that lets a uh, subject pop out from the rest is what we're talking about right now, I think. 
maybe that was not the most easy explanation <laughs> for what book is. Well, the, 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 yeah, bokeh is the quality of the out of focus portion of a frame behind the subject uh, plane of focus. And we spend entirely too much time with that, too, because when you think about depth of field, it's simply a tool to achieve your purpose. And if you need deep depth of field because you're doing a landscape where you want everything in focus, bokeh is a non-issue. And when you are photographing or filming a face, let's limit it to a human face, then the value of a shallow depth of field is to draw the viewer to the face. That being the case, the arguments and the, the back and forth over the quality of bokeh and how perfect are the bokeh circles or are they onion ringed or are they cat's eyed is a whole lot of nothing for most people because if you're using a very shallow depth of field and your audience is looking at the part that's out of focus, somehow you've failed as a photographer or a filmmaker. In fact, there are cameras that have perfectly circular uh, bokeh rings or bokeh balls with no onions. And that is a testament to the, the optical design, I grant you. But for a really great photograph, for a really great scene in a film, again, if that's what the viewer or the audience is focusing on, yep. you've missed the boat. Sorry. Just missed the boat. And most people don't understand that there is great value in having deeper depth of field so that one can be aware of the surroundings in which the person or the character are operating. The, the best and highest use of uh, bokeh for us is when we're filming people on location in very tight quarters and we want to blur the background because it's distracting otherwise. That's the highest use of very shallow depth. Absolutely. And sometimes it's, um, it's one of the things that, um, when you're not, when you don't understand that it's just one of the many tools to tell a story. Um, I, I would right. even go so far and making a totally untrue statement that, uh, says bokeh never made a picture great. Connection lost. There Net you are. Network. I, I quit and then came back in. I don't know why that happened. Sorry. Someone, someone cut the Wi-Fi cable or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you, you cut off the moment I was oh. finishing with my uh, totally polarizing, purposefully polarizing statement that Boken never made an image great. Well, so that's not true. We know that that's not true. There are some wonderful shots. Uh, my buddy John Kreidler at Leica once gave me uh, the manual focus 75 millimeter Noctilux 1.2, and I hate him for that because now I want one that I can afford it. <laughs> but it is also the case that some of the most renowned lenses of all time, like the Leica 50 millimeter 0.95, has some serious chromatic aberration uh, and spherochromatic chromatic aberration as well as lateral chromatic aberration and at that point you can say it's a good thing that you use it in black and white for most of the time but it's just we we 
get so strident we border on the hysterical over camera gear and it's just a tremendous waste of time and effort if people like something that that you or i don't like let's be happy for them that they enjoy it yes there's there's just an awful lot of vitriol and incredible immaturity on the web of course the way to handle that is to pretty much ignore it so uh, maybe you want to talk about trolls or not but that's very simple too yeah i i I think that you got exactly to the point that i was trying to make um it is like salt in in the soup right it it is an ingredient but too much of it doesn't make your soup more, more more tasty and i'm I'm one of the people that are really in love with bokeh and depth of field. And the reason why I say, um, why I made the statement is just as an advice of think of the, what you want to photograph and what you try to communicate it before you think about how far can I open the aperture, uh, for, you know, the background gets blurry, you know, maybe you should, think about what's in the foreground what's in the background how can i use depth like physical depth and layers to make the picture more more interesting um i sent you a few photographs when we started to uh to talk and uh, one picture that i'm the most proud of but also the most disappointed of is the picture that i took of this uh african lady that uh that i shot in tanzania with a, a shepherd stick um the tribal woman i remember it um what i love about it is um yeah you know like i shot it in a way that i'm kind of looking up to her um just you know i hate these i'm, I'm really sorry for uh, saying this this way but these trashy tear-jerking africa crying baby flies in the face please don't eat type of pictures you know like we it's not always that um you know it's necessary to be aware of poverty but also um i think it has been just cheap effects of looking down to 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 people but back to the beginning of the statement what i messed up in this i totally totally forgot to use the background to my advantage because there's a beautiful African tree and I totally blocked it and I totally messed it up. I had the aperture way too open to use this to my full advantage because I was like, oh yeah, this is my my Steve McCurry moment right there. The light was perfect. I've never had better light anywhere outdoors in my life because it was a totally sunny day, but the clouds came. So it was super soft. Um, the light and it was super nice uh, but because I was so focused on yeah let's get this one standout shot um, and it's a great picture but I messed up using the background to my advantage to make it more interesting and I am still upset about that today even if it's a picture that I and that still is great but it could have been better and that's the point that I try to make with uh, forget about bokeh focus on what's in front of you and what's behind that and try to work with that more than just make stuff blurry. I think that, that what you're really addressing is the issue of intent. What do you actually want to communicate yeah. within that frame? 
And then Boca becomes just another tool. And, and that's the beginning and end of it. That's all. But it is interesting that so many of the new kit lenses have uh, variable apertures and they'll go to even uh, F7.1, for example. Yeah. Uh, and that's problematic for me. One, because when I want to employ shallow depth of field in service of my intent, these kinds of lenses don't let me do that. That's number one. Number two, so a 70, so 105 millimeters at F7.1 is a very different look than uh, at 2.8. Yeah. But the other thing is that at 7.1, you're spooling up ISO or dropping down the shutter speed to compensate. And that can range as well. Uh, right. And when you when you goose the ISO, you're bringing down the dynamic range very quickly, in fact. So, you know, all these cameras where they talk about 15 stops of dynamic range, you get down to ISO 6400 and you've lost half of it or 12,800. You've lost half of it. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you're making the point, but I just wish we would take down all of the the dogma that surrounds uh, photography you know, like never crop. Look, in the film days, the admonition to never crop certainly makes more sense than it does today, because the idea was if you had to crop, you would degrade the image very if you defined image quality in terms of grain and tonality, yes, it's true. That would make a huge difference. Uh, and yes, all else being equal, if you have the time and the wherewithal to put the right lens on for every situation, then great, you can fill the frame. But if you want to travel light, or if you find yourself in a set of circumstances where you don't have the time or the particular gear that you need, then my view is crop the crap out of it yeah. if it serves the intent. And with today's high resolution sensors, even with 24 megapixel sensors, you can get away with so much. Yeah. That, that you should be free. That's one dogma. Another dogma to always shoot in one format as opposed to another. It's just that. It's dogma. As I said earlier, I shoot in RAW and JPEG because I want to preserve color when I'm shooting black and white. But the reason why I shoot in both is because I almost never, ever, ever blow an exposure where I need raw to recover it in post. But I do like having a fast, fluid workflow and JPEGs for where I display my work, even in print in our books is fine. Yeah. And also, um, I think we make it more more complicated to ourselves or, um, you know, when you start, you, you overthink too much. If you want, want to get into film, use your phone, make a short film. You don't need to publish it and, and put it on your portfolio, but just make a project, learn how the project works, learn how storyboarding, writing, editing works, then spend money. Agreed. Great advice. Stuff that I very expensively learned. So <laughs> welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. It is funny. We talk about, you know, back to the roots, reduce to the max, uh, use what you have. And then I'm sitting there drooling over like, uh, stuff. Um, and it's okay to live in that twilight zone of knowing and wanting and needing and, uh, wanting, you know, 
As long as you don't lose the forest for the trees. Yeah. As long as your pursuit of the glorious doesn't come at the expense of your own health, your personal relationships, your finances, yes. your fellow human being, you know, have at it. But if, if you lose, if you lose sight of those things, then take a step back. Absolutely. And also like, story matters more than gear i think we established that uh that enough um but i would like to switch the topic really really quick because i think you and i we could talk about gear we could talk about lenses and all of these things probably until 2022 um but what is what yes i have that of time today but <laughs> exactly so i i would like to switch gears here really quick is there a project that you haven't done yet but you would describe as a dream project and 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 doing with filmmaking or photography well the the dream is social impact image making um so so when the pandemic hit I've actually been in the pharmaceutical industry. I, I understand a little bit more than the average human being about, about disease and, and vaccinations, not nearly as much as doctors do. I was in pharmaceutical market research, but I was aware enough that, that I realized I need to not play with this. I need to keep away from crowded uh, situations. And so I did not go into the thick of crowds in the uh, in the uproars over the last 12 months or so. And I re really regret not doing that, but I don't regret that decision. Uh, I would love to do much more with that. And opportunities may or may not present themselves but in the meantime i get to go back out on the street and claudia and i started doing that in november and it has been an incredibly nourishing experience and we're actually opening up our streets of new york workshops again this fall so for right now my ambition is just to be able to actually have those workshops take place in october but um yeah social impact work. As I said earlier, we did a 25 webisode series on a hazardous liquids pipeline. Uh, we've covered Bernie Sanders a number of times. We think he's amazing. Uh, things like that. I would enjoy that. What about you? Good question. I, I think for now, I'm pretty much done with my photography bucket list, uh, which is a very, very naive thing to say at 30. But you know, I wanted to cover the 24 hours of Le Mans, which by now I have done three times. Um, I wanted to photograph a war zone, which I've done. I wanted to document. Uh, that was amazing, by the way. That was amazing. Yeah, it's uh, mostly uh, most of the work that happened there was uh, Dylan and Christian from my production company, Freelance Society. Um, but uh, I joined them in for the one trip to um, the outskirts of Mosul in 2015. And we were, we were all told that uh, we were like 100 meters from the front line to ISIS. Uh, we were embedded with the Peshmerga and then we got out of the um, area that the Peshmerga was responsible for and were embedded to the um, Iraqi army. 
um, which it's not Hollywood. Um, what what happens there? Um, a lot of the things that were going on there, um, I was very aware of what I got myself into. Um, but I also saw so many things that changed my whole perspective about not only news, because I, I already covered before that the refugee crisis in the Balkans, where I literally parked next to the uh, truck off scene and uh, while they were eating the sandwiches and then, you know, it was go time, they went live and they made the framing of the story of, oh, it's totally chaotic and people try to escape and run away. And you see me with with my uh, with my uh, Coke in the background drinking, standing around. And I did that on purpose and I actually made it into the news uh, the day because when we were back at the hotel, <laughs> we saw that shot. <laughs> You little photo bomber, you. Yeah, because yeah. you know, obviously, where it bleeds, it leads. That's that's the the main main thing about how reporting is done. I understand that, but also things need to become more sober to have a lasting and more healthy effect of how we communicate with images, with stories, with news reports, and everything. Certain realities out there. It's it's interesting that you say this. I'm thinking about. Oh, wow. The radio guy was it Edward R. Murrow, Edward R. Murrow. And I think about the anchors that we have on TV today. I think about how glib it all is, how superficial it all is. And I started up and, and actually some of the best analytical uh, commentary, political commentary comes from the late night talk show yeah. hosts, comedians. Fascinating. And to your earlier point, Simon, about YouTube, there are a number of 30 something YouTubers who are keenly insightful about the human condition and about politics. So I enjoy that. But I set up uh, silence as complicity because I just wanted to talk about things that were much more important than photography or filmmaking our lives. I mean, the United States came close to fascism. And we are not out of the woods. And I don't see very many voices that are just calm and balanced and straightforward. So that's why I started that channel. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. We'll see. But I give you guys in, uh, props. I mean, it's 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 not only ambitious what you did, but it was brave, and you came out with stuff that mattered. So hats off to you. Thank you so much. I think it's 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 self awareness is the highest currency, and and when you when you are an observer of a small space in a big picture. Um, and that it may be what I photographed, what we filmed, what we documented is not the truth trademark, but it is a perspective of, of what we've experienced there. And there's a, uh, there's a big disconnect with uh, image and the reality of that moment that occurred that this image is from. Well, there's all there's to, you said something earlier and uh, it, it's not without its own controversies, but I'll I'll use that as a launching pad to make a point related to what you just said. There is an awful lot of cultural bias 
there is an awful lot of cultural arrogance, hubris uh, in, in the world. And it would be great if we could take that back a couple of notches. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it is just in a very, very bizarre way, beautiful to see events like that, like we saw in, in near Mosul in Iraq with your own eyes. As a person that was like born three weeks after the unification of uh, Germany. Uh, 1989. 1990, but the official like legal unification of the two uh, uh, states was in October 90 when, you know, like Germany became one finally. Um, and I've grown up just not really experiencing anything of the Cold War, of post-war Germany that my parents, uh, my mother particularly, uh, you know, like has experienced through her childhood. Um, so um, most of us in Western countries are extremely sheltered from the reality that a lot of people need to endure. When in school or on TV, anything connected to the Holocaust happened and was shown documentaries um until today it doesn't click how you can bring so much evil on that scale with that technical perfection and that lo logistical perfection upon people i still don't understand it and that was the main reason why i needed to see an active war zone for myself to at least get a glimpse of what it means to be exposed to war and to you know becoming a refugee you know what people get out of and what they get themselves into which you know like sometimes what they got out of is not as bad as what they got got themselves into uh looking at the um things that were happening in, in Serbia with like all the crazy organ harvesting stuff that happened there with uh, some, some refugees. Um, but to, to not go too gory and not to get too morbid with, with this, it is good for us to see things that we don't like and that are terrifying us in a way if we manage not to get too scarred by it and also um, to understand that all first world problems are completely nonsense through to com compare to what people that face existential threats um, go through. Very, very well put. It's interesting. This is another reason why I love photography, because photography was the tool by which people first were able to see the horrors of war yes. up close. The brutality of the American Civil War battlefields uh, shot by Matthew Brady and others were stunning. The carnage of trench warfare in World War One, brought to life through photographs, stunning yet again. The uh, liberation of the death camps in 1945, the, the films of those things were stunning. And with all of that as information that I had in 2015, 
I I understood what we were looking at. I understood that we weren't that far off from being split and creating refugees. I mean, there's nothing about American exceptionalism which absolutely prevents that from happening here. And I think it's been a wake up call for Americans who don't think about that to think about that. And it's a wake up call for Western society to come to terms with the fact that it is Western society which is polluting the planet to a point where we all perish. The planet will go on. The planet will go on. I mean, that's just science. But if we want a place of beauty and tranquility and safety and abundance for our children and our grandchildren, we can't keep doing what we're doing. So joining the Paris, rejoining the Paris Accords in the overall scheme of what needs to be done ain't much, but it's a start. And now let's see if we can accelerate it. I mean, really accelerate it. Well, Simon, this has been a, a very, very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming, coming to the podcast. Um, I really enjoyed it uh, myself as well. I hope at some point we uh, can continue this. I am very, very excited to uh, continue to follow your work, uh, the uh, pictures you take, the stories you tell. I, in pre you. Pre preparation to this uh, to this recording, I watched a documentary series about the gas pipeline, which is definitely worth a watch and definitely something. Um, if if you, the audience, have the time, should take a look at uh, not only that the storytelling is beautiful, but also the the issue matters, and it's uh, important to you know sometimes look at things that maybe even not directly affect you, but it's good to know that stuff is out there that uh, needs to be addressed. You know, thank you for, for thank you for that. Uh, Mariner East the series is the website Mariner East the series. But to a point that you made earlier, and that tension between being honest with oneself and loving oneself, you can see uh, uh, my growth, our growth as a filmmaking team from a very jumpy first episode where I was constantly cutting in uh, and making edits and could not figure out how to make it smooth to in the end, just saying, here it is. And, you know, the lighting is good. The Audio is fine, but it didn't matter because even when it was at its worst, it the 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 intent was to get people's stories out there when it mattered, when it mattered. So I think Mariner East the series is a wonderful example of social impact uh, filmmaking on the one hand, and on that tension that you talked about early on about beating one's self up for it not being perfect and then saying it's okay it's okay especially when it's in service of a greater good yes absolutely and um i can't wait to to release this uh release this episode uh because it's a definitely matter of fact uh, the longest recording i've i've done on this show uh and i'm happy that uh, i wasn't bored for a single second uh of this and uh, <laughs> me there uh, we will definitely uh, reach out to you once we are finally able to drive, travel back to the U.S. We are uh, going to, I know that's not where you live, but you spend a lot of time there. Uh, when we go to New York City, we will give you a heads up. 
Um, of course. And uh, we'll make something happen. We will make, make stuff happen. And uh, thank you for your time. Is there anything you want to uh, put out there? Anything you want to plug? Anything you want to drop that people go and check it out besides the documentary? Well, look, if if people in during this lockdown uh, miss New York City, if you want, then check out uh, our book, Streets of New York. We have only a few copies left, but if you love that kind of humanity, I think people get a real kick out of that. And they can look at that at www.3bmep.com slash books. So that's something that's really nice. And we have not uh, loaded it to the general public yet, but in the next couple of days, uh, we will be opening up our October Streets of New York workshops to the general public. And they'll be able to find that at www.3bmep.com slash streets21. And all so, of that will be linked into the description of the podcast, no matter which platform you're using, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Anchor, whatever. Uh, there will be a clickable link. You just tap on it and you're right there. And if we can make it happen, if uh, we finally are able in Germany to get our vaccines uh, you know, out to the people, which for some reason we overcomplicated and totally mess it up. But that's a different discussion. We definitely will go and we definitely will sign up uh, uh, if we have the chance and we will make sure we um, create some, some imagery that we can frame and say, yep, that's, I was there, I did the thing. And that's what photography is all, all about. Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> Take good care of yourself. Uh, of yourself. Say hi to the wife. Uh, she probably has been patient enough uh, <laughs> to have you back. And uh, stay in touch. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend. You too, Simon. Please. Take care. Bye. Ciao.